Hi, everyone. This is Jenna Spinelli from Democracy Works here today with a bonus episode from the Future Hindsight podcast. Future Hindsight is a show that features deep conversations with guests who are engaged in strengthening our society. This episode is a discussion with political scientist and foreign policy expert Ian Bremmer on his book Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. We thought it would be a nice way to round out the series on democracy around the world that we've been doing over the past few weeks. In this episode, Ian takes a big picture look at populism, authoritarianism, and some of the other trends that we've been talking about here on Democracy Works. Thank you to Future Hindsight for sharing this episode with us. The podcast is now in its fifth season and available on Apple Podcasts or your favorite streaming app. So thanks again, Future Hindsight, and enjoy this conversation with Ian Bremmer. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Globalism has failed is the conclusion of today's guest on Future Hindsight, Ian Bremmer, the president and founder of Eurasia Group and the foreign affairs columnist and editor-at-large at Time magazine. His latest book, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism, is a New York Times bestseller. He is a prolific thought leader and author who looks at the world, assessing risks and opportunities. In this book, he ties globalism's discontents to the rise of nationalism, a form of us versus them. He predicts that it's going to get worse, but it's possible to write our ship and write a new social contract. Welcome, Ian Bremmer. Thank Hi. you for being with yeah, us today. Yeah, my pleasure. The title of your book is Us Versus Them. Who is us and who's them? And the first point is that uh, you'd hope that there wouldn't be an us versus them, that the United States was founded on this idea that, you know, there's a melting pot and everyone's together. We're increasingly divided as a country today, more than at any time in our lifetimes. Unfortunately, that's also true in um, most of the countries uh, in the developed world. So the first point is that us versus them is the finger pointing that's happening, the demonization that's happening within our own countries. Trump supporters versus not, it's Fox versus MSNBC, it's fake news versus fake news, it's all that kind of stuff, right? But then more broadly than that, it is this idea that came after World War II when we, the United States, created the United Nations. And we rebuilt our enemies, even, in the Marshall Plan and uh, MacArthur in Japan, because we hoped that we could avoid another war. And so we wanted to reach out to all of humanity and rebuild them in our image with universal human rights and sense of hope and mission. And, and globalism was this idea that free markets and open borders and the US and our allies working to provide global security and maybe even promote democracy, that all of those things would bring us closer together, would eliminate the tribalism and the hatreds that came from it in us versus them. And what we see today in 2018 is nothing could be farther from the truth. And America First, of course, as articulated by our president, is pretty much the opposite of um, one big humanity. It's the opposite of an international community. Um, it is, and he is, um, the embodiment of an us versus them president. There have been lots of successes with globalism right, in terms of free trade and open borders. So how do you define the failure of globalism aside from having the enmity between two different sets of people? Globalization 
which is an economic process, has not failed at all. In fact, uh, free trade um, and open borders for goods and labor has led to much greater efficiency in the markets, much cheaper goods at your local Walmart, um, and more global growth than the world economy has ever seen under any other system. And as you know, it's brought uh, billions of people out of extreme poverty. It's created a global middle class. It's what allowed emerging markets to emerge. So at no point in this book am I suggesting that globalization failed. What I am suggesting is that the ideology of leaders from the West, from the advanced industrial democracy, that's globalism. That's a political ideology. It's a political system. And that system has failed its citizens. That's, it's been rejected. And that's why we have Trump. It's why we had Bernie Sanders. It's getting worse. And it is not just about economics. It's also a reaction to immigration. It's a reaction to fighting wars outside our borders. And it's a reaction to technology and advances in technology. So... What's the solution for everyday people when you think about rejecting this ideology and you think, well, I don't want this anymore? How can you check out of the system short of electing somebody like Trump or Brexit? Because sometimes that's not on the ballot. The solution for everyday people um, is um, to actually get the kind of benefits and training and investment in infrastructure that would make the American dream or the equivalents in Europe and other countries feel real to them. Again, you can't have the opioid epidemic that we have today or the abysmal K through 12 public school system that we have in the US today. You've got to fix those things to create solutions for average people. Now, what's interesting about this book is, of course, you don't need to do that. You can just ignore it and wall them off more effectively. And uh, that's, of course, one of the things that Trump is trying to do, right? I mean, Trump is really good at saying that we're going to keep foreigners out, where we've got a Muslim ban and he wants a Mexico wall. And he's trying to say that all these people have forgotten about you and I'm the guy that's going to remember. Now, there's nothing that Trump's doing that's actually creating real economic opportunities for those that have been disenfranchised. But there's a lot of things he's doing to make them feel like the old America that they thought they were a part of, they can be a part of again. And building walls and disenfranchising people is something that has been shown to be effective. We've seen it in Israel, Palestinians, we've seen it in South Africa, and we are increasingly seeing it uh, where we live, uh, both real walls and virtual walls. And we shouldn't pretend that's not going to happen because, you know, the fact is that globalism has worked for globalists. Right, You and me sitting here in Manhattan, we do not have these problems. We've had every opportunity, but the vast majority of the people living in the United States and in Europe do not have those opportunities, and they're not getting them. And so we say that we live in liberal democracies, and yet more and more people believe that the system is rigged against them. And I say this in the preface of my book, I grew up in the projects. My mother thought the system was rigged against her and against her family. And as a consequence, I am fairly certain she would have been a Trump voter. She certainly would not have been a Clinton or a Bush voter. And that, that pretty much describes everyone I grew up with. What are our responsibilities as people who are benefiting from this? I'd like to believe that it's not 
because we're evil that we dehumanize. We dehumanize because we're uncomfortable with the cognitive dissonance that comes from the incredible inequality of treating other people as badly as we do. It is really not comfortable that we've had over 5 million Syrians that are refugees in the last seven years, and we've done absolutely nothing about it. So the easiest thing to do is say, well, those aren't really people. Those aren't, those aren't Americans. Those aren't people we need to take care of. Venezuelans, over a million refugees, 90% of them have uh, not been able to get enough food in the last year. They've lost on average 17 pounds each in weight in the last 12 months. The only way you can really deal with that is if you say they're not people. And so one of the things that we need to do as people that are beneficiaries of globalism is assertively try to stop that dehumanizing process. And we need to do what we can to try to support experiments that will help address some of these problems. And, there, and, and I'm not talking about becoming Mother Teresa. I'm talking about, you know, sort of if the government's not gonna fix this and our central government clearly is far too sclerotic and far too captured by special interests and big money and big corporations and the rest to suddenly fix this in the way that we didn't fix climate change suddenly 30 years ago, then that requires individuals with the wherewithal, the knowledge and the means to make a difference to start those experiments. Now, for me as a political scientist, what am I doing? I started a media company, I'm writing books on the issue, I'm giving lectures, I started a foundation. I mean, I'm probably spending a quarter of my time today that I wouldn't have done five years ago, trying to bring these issues more to the forefront of the consciousness of the average person, right? Different people can do different things. Mayors around the country have started programs in San Francisco, they now have, uh, free community college education for all residents that want it. Um, the CEO of AT&T, Randall Stevenson, started a program to provide uh, universal training for all AT&T employees um, that they'll pay for, but you have to do it on your time so that when big data and AI come along and your skill set is no longer relevant, you'd otherwise lose your job. As long as you're succeeding in learning these new skills, you'll still have a job. Now, there are a lot of people that are starting experiments and a lot of them will fail. And the purpose of my book was not to say, here's what you need to do, because we are way too soon in the process to know what you need to do. We actually now need a whole bunch of people to have awareness and to start experiments. So we find out in 10 years time and 20 years time, here are some of the things that work. You talked about some experiments in the book, a number of them. Which ones are your favorites that appeal to you sort of on a human basis? If you were a person who was on the ground and you were on the other side, what would appeal to you the most? I like two sorts of things. First, I like more flexibility in the work environment. I like the idea that we supplement much better training and much more equitable social benefits for healthcare and education and childcare for everyone. Supplementing that with the ability facilitated by technology for people to be able to sell their skill sets in much more flexible ways. So instead of working for corporations or not having jobs, really facilitating every sort of skill with the gig economy. So we know Airbnb and Uber 
allow you to sell your apartment for a day or a room in it or you know sort of sell a ride even if you're just driving for half a day well what if we could do that with all of your skills and what if that was really facilitated so that corporations would be able to hire and fire employees at will whenever they needed them and individuals could choose or not to take any gig and you really brought efficiency to that market i think that would make a lot more people functional employees and let them do things they were happier with. But you'd really need to make sure that those people are taken care of. So if they only are working 20 hours in some creative stuff and they're not making enough, they're not disincented to try that out. I think that could be great. That's one set of solutions. The other set of solutions I want to see are driven by me too. Because I think one of the reasons why women are not as many Fortune 100 CEOs as they are, is because capitalism and the extreme form of capitalism that's practiced in big multinational corporations means that to take those jobs, you have to devote yourself monomaniacally to that for 80 hours a week and nothing else matters. And that's the only skill set you want. That's a really unhealthy thing. It's great for the companies. It's really bad for us. It's dehumanizing for us. I really do believe that if women were 50% of corporate CEOs, if we had a capitalism that was more around balanced skill sets, that was more around living in a way that is sustainable and happy for people, then I think that 50% women CEOs not only would be incredibly successful, but would drive that. I'll give you an example. There's a study out there that I saw recently that showed that among high school students, when you look at the 0.01% talent base, the ones that are super, super successful in math and science and you know sort of civics and what have you, they tend to be boys, not girls. So the boys are smarter in these topics. That's where you get the incredible success. Then you go back to grammar school and you realize that in early years, Girls and boys are testing as well in all of these subjects. Perfect bell distribution. But what's happening is that when you have a child that tests pretty well in the top 1% in one topic, they usually test pretty well in five topics or eight topics. And the girls will keep doing a whole bunch of those topics and apply themselves to all of them and still be really good at all of them. Where the boys will give up on a bunch of them and they'll get really awesome at just one. That doesn't really surprise me because we already know that, you know, sort of if you look at genetics, Asperger's and autism is much more found in boys than it is girls. But then now apply that to adulthood and apply it to capitalism and, and apply it to marketing and advertising and maximizing profit, which is completely not human. It's not human to maximize profit, but it's really capitalist. And it turns out that you look at this study for educating boys, it turns out that boys are more capable of being manipulated or naturally manipulating themselves to succeeding in that ball game, which is not human, which is actually taking things and making it worse for society. So if suddenly we're gonna take labor more out of the capital equation, it seems to me that we're actually setting ourselves up for society, which is likely to be much more humane, much more balanced, which probably means much less dominated by guys. And I think that's a good thing. If I were part of them 
And uh, much as I'd like to say that I am, and I certainly grew up that way, I'm not. I'm a globalist. I've benefited tremendously from the system. Those are the two things that I think would make me happiest. And by the way, I think those are the two things that would make me happiest, even as a member of us, because I think it'd be better for society. And I don't want to live in a world where I'm constantly thinking that it's only comfortable behind the gates. I think that's not a comfortable place to be. Right. I agree with that. I grew up in a place where we were all ways behind the gates. So what you said just now about Me Too and the gig economy, in my mind, the first question I had was, does it assume that people must be well-educated in order to be able to function in this way? Because if you don't really have a skill set to sell, you know, even on a gig basis, it's very difficult. Well, I think there are lots of different ways that you can be high-skilled. Uh, I think you can be high-skilled as a massage therapist. I think you can be high-skilled with empathy. Uh, you can be high-skilled to deal with seniors. Uh, gerontocracy is certainly coming, and there are a lot of people that, let's face it, if you have money for a very long time, you'd really rather be engaging with people in that regard than you would with uh, a furry animatronic seal that they have in some of the old homes in uh, Japan right now. So I, I don't think that we're about to get rid of the viability of differential skill labor in the world, but you're absolutely right that a number of jobs that involve basic rote are basically going away. And that's true for McDonald's, it's true for driving. These are large numbers of people. To fix that, you've got to get the kids early. You have to get K through four education right and you also have to support parents so that they have the training and the time to, to take care of their kids, to make a difference for their kids, which of course means not so much dealing with just broken homes, but dealing with the drug addiction, dealing with two jobs and can't make ends meet so you're not spending time with your kids, all of that kind of stuff. When I read J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, I was quite inspired by it because so much of what he went through really resonated with me. He grew up in Appalachia in Ohio and they all felt the system was rigged against them, and it was. But he had his Mima, his grandmother, and his grandmother was the one that was gonna make sure he had every opportunity no matter what, which is exactly the same thing with me and my mother. My brother and I had my mother. She was a unique figure. She made it happen. But, you know, not everyone is gonna have that. You can say that people need to pull themselves up from their bootstraps, but I, I've always found that kind of libertarianism completely unacceptable this notion of I made it and so therefore you should make it. You know, the fact is I am a white male, reasonable height, good health, grew up in the United States with an extraordinary mother. In other words, I hit the freaking lottery, right? On the global scale, I am in the 0.01% with all of that stuff going for me. And yet I almost didn't make it because I didn't have the connections. So I went to Tulane out of the projects because I got a full scholarship and I wasn't aware of the fact that like Tulane, the job fair was lousy and it was all local and none of my professors had any access to professors in the top schools. So even though they told me I was the best student they had ever seen and my academic skills were obviously great, my ability to get into the, the fast track to really make the American dream was super constrained and I almost made a huge mistake. And if I was 5% less pushy or less networking and orientation, I wouldn't have made that. And I would have had a perfectly fine life, but we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. 
And the American dream has been taken away by a system that is actually closed off. We don't seem to care about it. We're like, well, look, as long as he's smart, he'll make it. It's just not true. And I'm really agitated by people that grew up on third base and thought they hit a triple. We actually need a system that makes that a less uncommon story. It's become an incredibly rare story because everyone that pretends they've done it actually was already standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear you. I think you made a very strong case about how exactly the system is rigged in many ways, especially in education and therefore for young people nowadays. So what is government's role in solving this inequity? I think government has a big role. We know that elites, as generous as we may be, suddenly become a lot less generous when it comes to our kids. You'll do anything to make sure that your kid's gonna have every opportunity. In the same way that my mother, if, if something was gonna happen to her kids, she would have killed somebody. There's no question. And, but that impulse, when you have a system that is very unequal, creates more inequality. So the purpose of the government is to be the referee. It's to make sure that the game is fair. It's to make sure that people have a quality of opportunity. It's not to prevent people from getting wealth. It's not to prevent people from having wealth to be able to create more wealth. That's fine. But you have to be able to redistribute in a reasonable way so that people that don't have are not kept out of the system. And if the education and healthcare and policing and judicial systems are not working to facilitate that equality of opportunity, then the system is broken and needs to be changed. And that's why I am a lot more sympathetic to people that voted for Trump than I am to members of the elites like myself who for the last decades were willing to stand by and be complicit in a system that left a whole bunch of people so far behind that they were willing to vote for someone as clearly incapable and hateful as Trump to become the president of the United States. I think a lot of people walk through life not thinking too much about these more complex issues the way that you do as a political scientist. What would you say is the largest point of ignorance for people who benefit from the system and the reason why they don't see that they are complicit? Well, they don't see the network effects. They don't see the tiny little ways. They don't think about the fact that like your kid only got an internship in the key place because of the phone call that you made. Or they don't see that the folks that they're hanging out with and the parents of those folks are gonna create every opportunity for the rest of their lives and the vast majority of people in the country and in the world will have none of that. And so it's not that your child is fundamentally smarter. They don't see that when at Stanford University, they did a computer 101 course, not just for the extraordinary 400 students at Stanford, but they opened it up to students all over the world and found out that the top student at Stanford wasn't even in the top thousand of those that actually took the course. Because there were so many brilliant kids from India and Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and everywhere else, but they were never going to get into Stanford because no one was ever going to get them into Stanford. You know, you're creating guilds. You're creating clubs that are impossible to get into. The rules for application are published nowhere. You can't just buy yourself in. And that's gotten so much worse over the course of the past decades 
that it's gotten people to truly believe that our democratic systems are not democratic. One of the most depressing statistics in my book that I published is that over one sixth of young people in the United States today think that military leadership would be better as a system than democracy. It's not because they hate democracy, it's because they recognize that for them, the US is not a democracy. The role of money in the American system is a travesty. The special interests, the billions of dollars in 18 month election cycles, the inability to break through big pharma, the AARP or the NRA, and this is left and right, this is not one side of the political spectrum. You know, my mother was not stupid. She was uneducated. She graduated not even from high school. And she did not know any of the facts that I'm telling you today. She didn't understand exactly what needed to be done to fix the system. But she knew something much more fundamental, a more fundamental truth. She knew that whatever facts were being told to her by the leaders were only going to be used for the advantage of those leaders. That was a fundamental truth. And when Trump lies, and he lies all the time, and our media loves to catch him out in those lies and say, see, he lied again, look how stupid he is. And then Jim Comey comes out and he says, see, look at him, He's, look how morally unfit Trump is. And all those people that voted for Trump, they're morally unfit too. Those people are really angry because they know something really fundamental, which is that the media and the business leaders, the political leaders, they're all out there having good fun at their expense. And that's really not okay. As you asked me before what we can do, we can spend much more time than we presently do making it clear to those of us that have the power to do something about it that this is not okay. Because what people don't seem to understand is if the system is rigged against you, unless you break some stuff, unless you actually create a plausible threat, which, you know, people from emerging markets understand this because you've lived through revolutions, because people will kill you, because in Tunisia, they'll set themselves on fire. That's pretty dramatic. But in the United States, you know how we revolt? We sometimes have a demonstration on the weekends, and then we don't vote at all. If you don't have, at the least, something that's going to shake people to force them to take you seriously then we're just going to keep ignoring them like we did after the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2009. No one asked me about that movement anymore. I bring it up all the time. Nobody asked me. I don't care. Yeah, people don't care. They've moved on. It's uh, an interesting conundrum to be in a comfortable place and try and tackle these issues in the abstract. Do you think that the U.S. is at all at risk of having a real crisis like a revolution? Nope, not at all. What is it going to take for people, aside from, let's say, listening to you and being like, okay, I believe what Ian Bremmer is saying, and I want to make a difference. We're, we're, we're making a difference in climate today. After 30 years of small ball effort becoming larger ball effort, without the world necessarily getting destroyed. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. I actually think that we're now taking it seriously because enough people at the grassroots eventually got things going. And it was Al Gore, and it was Jack Ma, and it was Mike Bloomberg, it was Bill Gates, a bunch of people, right? And taking it seriously, even though the governments weren't. And so I, I'd like to believe that that will be the case here. But I don't pretend that success is guaranteed. As much as I believe in human beings when they're faced with hardship, that's when we see their best. But we also are courting risk, we're courting danger. And we've done some really bad things across our history. And we're doing them now. I mean, we don't need to just go back to slavery or the Holocaust or the Armenian genocide. Look at animals. We now know that animals 
are conscious scientifically, and we know they feel pain. But we also treat animals for livestock, and we all do, in ways that are so obviously inhumane, so obviously unacceptable to any idea of what we would think it means to be a human being. We do it because they're tasty. Let's face it, we're indifferent to it because there's just cognitive dissonance with us caring. Now, all I want to say is it is so clear as human beings that we are heading into an environment that we are going to be able to change ourselves to become so much smarter, so much more capable, live so much longer than we do right now. And when that happens, everything about human history tells us that if we don't get the politics right, we're going to treat people that aren't in that group the way we treat animals right now. And I really don't want to see that. Yes, I don't want to see that either. If we tackle the problem at this moment, we don't wait for a crisis, mm -hmm. or it may be that the crisis never comes, what are the opportunities and the choices that lay before us right now? We have so much money right now. I mean, the great thing, we're so divided while the economy is doing so well, that should give us fear that when the economy is doing badly, we're going to have huge problems because then we're going to start laying people off and interest rates go up. But that also means that right now we have a lot of money to do things. And instead of talking about building a wall, we need to talk about infrastructure week, right? We need to, and again, it's not going to happen from Trump. It's not going to happen from Washington, but it can happen locally. So I don't want to bang on about this. What we need are thousands of small experiments. And they don't all have to be at the CEO level. They can be on the street level, the community level. They can be on the blog spot level. But everyone that has the ability to do something about this issue has to do something about this issue. We need consciousness raising the way we did on climate 30 years ago. And we need people to start experiments. You know, with climate, people tried all sorts of things, right? We tried cold fusion we thought was going to be the new energy that would take care of the world. And it turned out that was wrong. But turned out that solar today is cheaper than coal during the day. Well, 30 years ago, it wasn't. 10 years ago, it wasn't, right? That's because people tried experiments. I think that the more we have, the greater the likelihood is we'll be able to get through this without treating people like animals. When you say you need more experiments, I think that's correct. I think the government needs to st step in. I think that's also correct. But these things take time. And do we have that time? Do we have 30 years? Human beings are both incredibly resilient and come up with amazing solutions when they're pushed really hard. But human beings also um, can tolerate immense amounts of injustice when they're forced to. People that are captured by terrorists develop relationships of warmth with them because they have no choice. Uh, the human body and the human spirit is unbreakable, but unbreakable can be used for good and unbreakable can be used for bad because we have a survival instinct that kicks in. And uh, I think we shouldn't forget that. You're right. Well, on that note, very inspirational. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Although globalism has so far only benefited the elite, it is not too late to make it work for everyone the way it was intended. For globalism to thrive and truly succeed, we need to inject humanity into public policies, whether we're talking about refugees or free community college. I'm personally skeptical about the possibility that the gig economy could be improved without many years of massive investment in education and training.
but I am hopeful that we can find a new, more flexible way of being employed that can provide economic security for everyone. I'm also optimistic about the Me Too movement, and I'm curious to see whether we will soon have women occupy 50% of leadership roles across industries. This will surely change our society. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. If you like this episode, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other streaming app. It really helps new listeners find this show. And while you're at it, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Future Heinzen. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Feder. The associate producer is Miriam Sumu. Find us online at futureheinzeit.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.